Hello, everyone, and welcome to a bonus episode of the Slash Filmcast. My name is David Chen, and joining me today is Devinder Hardwar. Joining us also is Jordan Cruciola for this bonus episode discussion of A Promising Young Woman. Jordan, thanks so much for joining us today on the Slash Filmcast. Thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, it is a real delight any chance I get to talk with other people about Promising Young Women, given the, the lack of like, you know, in-person communal spaces that we have these days. So yeah. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to have this uh, film club opportunity. This is one of those movies where you get out of the theater and you're just like, what the hell did I just watch? I need to tell everybody about this movie or something. Yeah, and at the time it was, I need to tell everybody, which meant I need to wait 10 months. Yeah. And it was uh, real. <laughs> yeah, because where did, where did you see it, Jordan, I for saw the first time? It, uh, in Feb- I saw it back in February. It was one of the last movies I saw before the lockdown started at a screening room, uh, one mm. of the little screening rooms just around the Beverly Hills area here in Los Angeles. And uh, I, w- I walked out just basically like dizzy, head spinning, and... Didn't like just totally dereliction of duty uh, at work. I was at Vulture at the time and just like walked around for two hours <laughs> instead of biking back home and getting back to work on the blog. Mm, mm. Uh, well, let's uh, let's talk about what we're doing here today a little bit. First of all, if you if you this is your first time listening to this podcast, you can find more episodes of this podcast at slash filmcast.com. Email us slash filmcast at gmail.com. Uh, we got a few requests to review Promising Young Woman. It, we couldn't really make it work with the schedule, but because this was such a uh, provocative movie and a movie we wanted to get uh, some good perspectives on, uh, we are recording this bonus episode with Jordan to to make sure we, we have some commentary on this important film uh, on the Slash Filmcast. And Jordan, uh, your work uh, can be seen at Vulture Wired and Brightwall Dark Room. Uh, you also host a podcast called Austerion, as well as uh, have a Patreon over at patreon.com slash Cruciola. Mm-hmm. You want to tell us a little bit about your uh, your podcast? Uh, yeah, I uh, Austerion is a one that I co-host and I produce with my uh, creative collaborator and my dear friend, the filmmaker Sam Weinman, who is currently working on the queer horror documentary for Shudder, which is following up uh, their horror noir documentary. And it is basically, uh, it is mine and Sam's shared love of millennial culture, like millennial era pop culture, uh, horror specifically, and the trash, discarded trash horror of the millennial era. Uh, The kind of sleepover movies that you really thrived on if you're probably between the ages of like 28 and 38. Um, plenty of things that, you know, we talk about things that, that too were critically praised at the time. We have, you know, an episode on Drag Me to Hell, but we really like to focus on things like I Know Who Killed Me or The Roommate that you might have maligned at the time, but the, we really want to give the close read attention to and, and give these movies sort of like discarded to the waste bin, the respect we feel like they deserve. And, um... I also have a podcast that I've been doing now for over a year called Disaster Girls with my co-host Amanda Smith and our uh, producer Jason Hammonds, where we just talk about disaster movies. So I'm talking about movies all of the time. Awesome. Well, we will link to all of Jordan's stuff in the show notes. If you want to check out more of her work, be sure to check it out at those various places. Again, the podcasts are Austerion or Austerion and Austerion. Uh, a terrible Austerion. The thing is, I misspell it constantly. <laughs> I, I misspell it constantly, but if you get it right, the SEO, it's all mine. If mm. you nail mm. it, I'm the it's only real, one there. It's a real uh, double-edged sword, that one. You know? It is. It's, um, it's tragedy. Yeah. And it, yeah. I mean, if 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 it wasn't apparent, it's it's our criterion treatment 
of the tank top horror movies of the like 1996 to 2013 mm. run. What about what so, about uh, Criteriats? <laughs> <laughs> I had considered that as well. I had considered that as well. And really, there's no phonetically, so, you yeah, know, sonorously, yeah. there's no good option. But like, I, I think somebody, it's somebody who knows Sam, I believe, tagged us once on Twitter and was like, wow, worst podcast name of 2020 goes to. And I was like, listen, you're not wrong. But I'm still, again, the only one for the most common misspelling and the actual true spelling. I so, like it. I like it. You know, you don't, you don't want to, you want people to work to get your stuff. You know what I mean? You can't <laughs> yes. just hand it out like uh, like uh, candy on the side of the road. You no, got to You got to make earned. people, yeah, it's earned. <laughs> it's literally earned media, Absolutely. as they say. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think you should have, uh, I think you should have probably, you know, found a way to, uh, to fit in your name in there somewhere, you know, Crucialian <laughs> podcast or something like that. I believe um, it is what is listed. It is my name is what is listed right next to it uh-huh, when you search uh-huh. for it, like as far as like what the affiliated network would be. I think it just says Cruciola underneath it in all lowercase. <laughs> which just, I was, you need you need a show called Just Crucian It at some point. Yeah, just just Crucian It. That's a good one. I, I tried to rename the slash filmcast conversations, but was uh, roundly <laughs> rejected, unfortunately. No. So yeah. anyway. Uh, yeah, I was once out. told, I do have to say, I was once told when I worked at Wired that my last name sounded like a Harry Potter incantation. Uh-huh. Mm. And um, <laughs> I'm fine with that. I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Uh, again, you can check out more of Jordan's work at Austerian uh, Podcast, as well as Disaster Girls Podcast, and her Patreon at patreon.com slash cruciola. We'll link to it all in the show notes. Let's get to our conversation of Promising Young Woman. Every week, I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. You okay? You are so pretty. I am a nice guy. Are you? One, two, three, four. I thought we had a connection. Okay. How old am I? What are my hobbies? What's my name? Sorry, maybe that one's too hard. That was from the trailer for Promising Young Woman, the new film by writer-director Emerald Fennell. You can get it right now on video on demand. Uh, We are going to talk very briefly about uh, our overall thoughts on this movie uh, and then go into spoilers. It's impossible to fully discuss this film without spoilers <laughs> yeah. but I, I think you can say that uh like the fact that we're talking about it now and have a bonus episode means we think you should watch it that said jordan cruciola you wrote a piece over at bright wall dark room entitled love friendship and vengeance reimagining romance and promising young woman mm-hmm. what's the gist of this piece what did you think of this movie overall um i i love this movie um, it's my favorite movie of 2020. I, I, it's going to have, a, considering it's released basically in both years, it's going to have a hard time going to be a, a, a more favorite movie for me in 2021 as well. Um, horror is my area of specialization. They're my favorite kinds of movies within that, uh, the subcategory of rape revenge films and vengeance films overall, and then winnow that down even further into rape revenge. And that's some of my, my favorite kinds of movies. I, I, I enjoy a good vengeance thread, but, uh, at the same time, I think they're, I, I deeply appreciate how much is on offer textually and subtextually within rape revenge films to sort of just consider, um, 
it's a real interesting lens if you look at those kinds of movies throughout the decades that they've been produced, sort of starting with the archetypal one and I spit on your grave in the 1970s up to our present with a movie like this. It is an incredible lens through which we can examine how do we feel about women in media? How do we feel about women in pop culture? And using that as a lens to see sort of our value system around the way we treat women's bodies and the, the stories we allow them to either tell for themselves or, or for them to star in. And so just as an anthropological item, I really appreciate those kinds of movies a lot. And this to me is, um, it is a, it is an interesting progression of what I consider sort of the neo-exploitation movement of the way we've seen rape revenge films evolve in the past decade, but acutely so over the past like five years. And to me, this is just, a, it's a new zenith for innovation in the form of what a, a femme vengeance film can look like. And it's a thrill. It is super entertaining and fun. The art direction is impeccable. The soundtrack is wonderful. Carrie Mulligan is feasting in this role as Cassie, our heroine, and I just love it. And I understand it is divisive. I understand uh, very valid uh, altering points of view and critiques of it. But for me, it really hits all those crucial buttons. All right, Devendra Hardwar, your thoughts on Promising Young Woman? Oh, yeah, I absolutely loved it as well. I'm right there with you, Jordan. I believe in your piece, you uh, you started off describing it as a live grenade. Mm. And I felt that watching <laughs> this movie, too. And for a debut, by the way, like for a debut feature film, it is so assured. It is so like whip smart and tight and sharp about everything it's doing um, from the writing to the performances. Like I, I've seen a lot of Carrie Mulligan movies and she is just on fire oh. here. But also this movie just knows exactly what it's trying to say. And it says it in so many smart and intelligent ways. I think even right down to like the way they cast the nice guys where mm. I, I don't know if you're aware of this Dave, but there are a lot of like uh very internet popular boyfriends, internet boyfriends <laughs> Tumblr boyfriends in this movie, yeah. Adam Brody, you know, Adam Brody, you got two, Veronica Mars boyfriends. Yeah, you don't movie. accidentally cast Piz yes. and Seth Cohen in the same yes. movie unless you're trying to say something. Exactly, exactly. And you got like McLovin's in there too. Like people, mm -hmm. faces that you recognize. And that's true for a lot of the cast too. But I just thought from the moment this movie begins, you see it's doing something interesting with the nice guys. It's selecting and it's saying so much. And um, I have to say, like, I don't. I'm not the biggest fan of the rape revenge genre just because um, I think a lot of them can be um, maybe too male gazy, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Like I feel like the excuse for so many of them is like, oh yeah, this is about empowerment, right? Like she, she is going to something brutal is going to happen at the end. This woman's mm -hmm. going to get revenge. And I feel like uh, at least for a lot of the ones I had to suffer through early on as a, as a cinephile, it just felt yeah. like a lot of them were glorifying also the abuse, like the actual mm -hmm. rape itself. And I'm not a fan of that. But I I do really appreciate a good revenge film and a revenge film that is sort of like playing with the genre and evolving things and pushing things forward. And we're going to talk about where this movie goes, because I think that is the crux of the discussion of this film, because it is so fascinating and interesting what Emerald Fennel does with this story. Um, yeah, I love everything about it. It is so smart and it's really great to find a thriller that is um I don't know. I just felt like I was in good hands immediately, you know, and <laughs> yes, sometimes I agree. Yeah. It's like, okay, you're, you're weaving a very good story here. You know exactly what you're doing. Tell me a story. And then it kind of breaks my heart at the end, but mm -hmm. I, it, it, it does so in a way that is so smart. I can't help but be wowed by it. So yeah, loved mm -hmm. it overall. 
Well, I'll say a few quick thoughts. Uh, There's many things I appreciated about the film. First of all, you're talking about how this is a, the movie is a grenade. Um, This is something you wrote in your review and Devendra echoes it. I I feel the same way. Uh, The provocation begins right with the title of the film, right? Which is Mm -hmm. the same, it's a, inversion i guess of the term that was used to refer to brock turner if i recall correctly yeah yeah that's Um, really where it you know it it long been around but it really sang in that particular instance yeah and it just right with the title of the movie you know kind of what this movie is going to try to say and um what position it's going to take and the thing that i appreciate about this film is it complexifies the idea of mm-hmm. uh the rape revenge genre mm-hmm. um it, it like it, it there's um you guys have talked about like some of the conventions of the genre and you know the woman's gonna get her revenge and she's gonna exact in some horrifying way but what does it cost her you know like that's basically the the template for most rape revenge movies and this movie throws in a few more curveballs in, into that mix that like make you think a little bit more than uh, one would otherwise uh, have to consider for like a, a straight up genre piece. I think Carrie Mulligan's great. Uh, she occasionally has dabbled in genre movies like uh, Drive, mm-hmm. you know, but she's mostly in kind of high end prestige period pieces like, like the movie we're going to be reviewing crowd. soon. Yeah, uh, the, the dig. dig. We're going to yeah. be reviewing that next week on the Slash <laughs> yeah. You know, like she's mostly in those kinds of movies. And I really love that she. Uh, my guess is went a little bit out of her comfort zone um, to do this movie. I mean, this is a movie that uh, is just not typically the type of character that she plays. I think she does a a wonderful job. Um, And I I mean, without, I I can't say more about my thoughts on the movie without talking about the ending. So I think (laughs) we should just get the spoilers. Um, But I, I, here's what I'll say uh, is that, the movie went in directions that surprised me. So, I'll, and I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it that's at that. That's a so, very succinct, succinct closer <laughs> yeah, to period, the spoiler-free the zone. End, that is the end of the review. No, so <laughs> so I think it's definitely worth watching. And I'm actually really glad to have the opportunity to chat with it about y'all, on, uh, about the film with y'all on this podcast, because I think there's a lot to dive into. So let's do that. Full spoilers for Promising Young Woman starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. You're trying to see this coming. No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. All right, now that we're in full spoilers, um, Jordan, I think we can start with you a little bit, and maybe you can share... I guess some of the things, uh, you know, you kind of alluded to them in your mm-hmm. in your overview, but I think I um, wonder if you could go more into detail about why you think this movie transcends this genre, like why you think it it compares favorably to other similar films. Like, mm-hmm. what is what are what are the specific things about this movie that you uh, really love that probably uh, involve spoiling it? Uh, Yes. Well, for me personally, and the anchor for the essay that I did write for Brightwell Dark Room is I I was fully prepared going into this movie for like a a wonderful vengeance ride in whatever form that was going to take. Um, I know whether for better or worse, the marketing employs a bit of sleight of hand selling a certain kind of movie that you think you're going to get out of Promising Young Woman that I think reflects a bit more of a conventional rape revenge or vengeance film story with a more conventional kind of ending, uh, at least taking the context for sort of how these these tales of, of bloodlust typically end. Um, and it doesn't give you that. And I appreciate the way in which 
because here's the here's the ultimate spoiler, folks. Get ready. <laughs> Cassie doesn't make it. And she, in sort of her path to ultimately realizing um avenging or trying to fill the hole left inside of her by the death of her friend Nina, who it's heavily implied died by suicide after um, slipping into a trauma and depression spiral following a rape in college uh, for which the perpetrator was not, um, he was not charged. He served no time. Uh, The justice system let the victim down. The woman was not believed. And because Cassie was not, not there to care for her friend Nina that night to look out for her to stop what happened from happening she has carried this guilt for seven years inside of her and has really sort of calcified inside has really turned inward into the hate and when she is given the opportunity at a bachelor party to finally drop the hammer down on this man al piz (laughs) for what he did to nina all those years ago um the showdown ends with him breaking his restraints and over what i would imagine is almost a real-time length uh, of suffocating Cassie until she dies with a pillow. It is an excruciating, I think, minutes-long scene where the the air is just leaving her body until she dies mm-hmm. and she's limp on the bed. The thing in that moment where I felt so betrayed initially watching this film, and I was like, no, 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 no. she's not, she's not. The next scene, she's going to come back somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's going to show up in the, she's going to show up in the middle of the wedding. That's what she's going to do. She's going to show up in the middle of this guy's wedding. <laughs> she's going to crawl up out of the ground and like, yep, yeah, it's going to be a huge yeah. surprise bitch moment and just rain down hellfire and brimstone. And when it just becomes very clear that that, that didn't happen, that's not what's going to happen. And the denial kind of starts to lift. What, emerald did in making that choice was for me which is extremely important was it cements nina as the central love story for cassie throughout the run of promising young woman it makes this movie a tale of soulmates it makes this movie a story of love lost and i am i am a queer woman i identify as pan romantic a gray asexual and um for me uh my love stories are the central love stories of Uh, My friendships are the central love stories of my life. These are the loves of my life. And the acute way in which um, friendships function in that deeply intimate level in my life, um, in the way that I think is typically reserved for people who engage in romantic and sexual relationships, that's where their partner specifically occupies that kind of um, that space, that pride of placement. That's what my friends are for me. And I so rarely get in movies... um, the ability to see myself in the intensity and care with which I consider my own best friendships. I rarely get to see that mirrored back at me because typically in narrative, it's a very sort of um, heteronormative binary way of looking at Mm -hmm. love and romance. It is uh, relationships and relationship tension revolves around who you're having sex with or who you're not. And for a not sex having person to this point in my life, that's just not something that really applies to me. That's not um, the emotional resonance that I most closely identify with. And typically in genre, these films I love so much, if you have these really close like same-sex friendships, it devolves into like some sort of psychosexual single white female terror (laughs) where you don't know where one ends and the other begins and it's toxic. And there's like queered uh, coded queer evilness. But in this movie, where this movie is sort of singular to me in, in it, it it follows up on the promise of Jennifer's body that it's sort of taken me 10 years, to, 10 more years to find is the way in which the Punisher 
um, forsakes his life in society to avenge the death of his child and his wife. The way, you know, Jennifer Garner goes on her killing spree in the movie Peppermint after her husband and son die. The way John Wick, the way Death Wish, these movies play out, these, these you know, iconic vengeance properties of our time. They're always pursuing the people who killed their partner and or their child. And in this case, we have Cassie spending a movie avenging the lost love of her life, who she describes in such caring and lovelorn detail whenever she has the chance to discuss Nina. I was like, this is it. This is the level of import, the level of immediacy, the level of essentialness that these platonic relationships occupy in my life. And I am seeing that level of importance and priority honored in this film by the implication of what Cassie would do of Cassie becoming John Wick basically for, for her Nina for, and you know, and when Cassie is, is dead and when she is burned by the men who would rather discard her body than take responsibility for what they've done to her, the only thing that's left of her in a pile of ashes is a half of a heart necklace that says Nina's name on it. The only thing that remains of her is Nina. And the only way she was living for seven years following the event of Nina's death was just by remembering her every day and doing something to make herself feel whole in the absence of this person in her life that meant everything to her. And so that, for me, is where this becomes a great love story, in addition to being a really fun and entertaining movie for all the reasons we've discussed. So that I will break my monologue to say that that is why, for me specifically... Promising Young Woman is just, uh, it is a real treasure that I rarely get to hold in my hands. Hmm. This is really fascinating uh, listening to you talk about it because I don't disagree with a single thing you said about what is good about the film, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think all that stuff you said is correct. There's there's many things that the film does really well. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, we've already, you guys have already talked about like the, the casting of the nice guys and like how that turns out to be um, kind of a, a a clever way to like turn the idea of the movie nice guy on its head, the idea of this female friendship, uh, and how powerful it is, how potent it is as an organizing force in her life. The um, when we see glimpses of Cassie's life towards the beginning of the film, she is kind of in a state of arrest development, right? Like, and and yeah, you can yeah. sense that like this traumatic event, uh, th this traumatic event like has kind of made it so that she's almost like disassociated. Like she doesn't even understand, like it's not her birthday. Oh, you know, great, whatever. I don't even care anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think like all those depictions are like really kind of smart and different. Mm -hmm. However. Yes. I would love to hear the, however, I would love to hear the, however, that's, that's, that's the amazing thing about a movie like this is, it is so provocative. As you have said, <laughs> if you have counter, if you have sort of an opposition, you know, statement about it or feeling about it. There's so much to be said and examined and analyzed in in a textual and metatextual sense for what we can glean from this movie, whether we think it's a scourge and it's counterproductive and it's destructive to women on screen, or if we think it is empowering and we think it is, you know, representative of a kind of victimhood or a kind of love that we don't typically get to see represented on screen. So please, yes, let me hear the however. Actually, let me say a few other things I like about the film uh, before we get into the however. One is, um, I, I was talking about how this movie complexifies the idea of, of the rape revenge fantasy and uh, aside from like the fantasy not really happening or happening in a in a mixed way at the end, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I like the whole like Alfred Molina character subplot where like mm -hmm. here's a guy who actually has the um, has it expresses the level of penance that she is looking for, mm -hmm. but yeah. it doesn't to me feel like a 
a victory for her. She's not like, mm-hmm. oh, like, yeah, this is awesome. Like, great. I'm moving. Like that, like the place that she's in, uh, even that sort of victory feels hollow and empty. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you think of that? The Alfred Molina subplot, the idea that like she's encountering all these dudes of various level of um, repentance. Mm-hmm. And this guy is like total repentance. And, yeah. but it, do- it doesn't to me feel like a triumph. It feels like, Hey, this path that she's on, which is like incredibly self-destructive mm-hmm. um, it, 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 there is very little satisfaction to be found on it. That's, that was my interpretation. What did you think of that? No, I, I think that I completely agree. And, and what I like about, what do I like about what we learn from the Alfred Molina scene is how Cassie seems to be in such a groove of what she has decided she is going to do with her life. Like there's that very fundamental moment in the cafe with Laverne Cox where she's talking about her parents heavily suggesting she move out of the house by buying her a suitcase. And she's like, well, you know, girl, why don't you move out? Like get out there, like get a better job. Stop working in my shitty coffee shop, like live your life. And she's like, I don't want it. The kids, the job, the success, the car, the money. I could have that in 10 minutes. I don't want it. I don't want it. She has fully opted out and she is so in this version of herself that she has decided is the only thing that can exist mm-hmm. that it is, I think, skewed her perception of what is right and wrong and what is satisfying even for herself. So my my favorite part of that Alfred Molina scene is when she is so overwhelmed by getting essentially what she quote unquote wanted from him, right. which is the penance, that when she walks out onto the street and there's a there's like a, a, a thug, a heavy outside <laughs> yep. waiting, being like, should I go in and like presumably not kill him because that's not been her MO, but like beat the shit out of him for sure. And she's like, no, but you still got your money. Yeah, you can go now. She doesn't look happy. She looks wrecked. And then when you have the scene with when she's confronting Connie Britton, the college dean, about not doing anything when Nina came to her with the, the accusation of the rape in college, when she walks out of that, that's when she goes full, like she goes fully snaps at an intersection with a guy who's honking at her. She gets out and she starts beating the shit out of his car, holding a, holding a, a like a tire iron or a crowbar. She doesn't look delighted by this. She She's not going like full atomic blonde. She stands there like she's having an existential crisis in the middle of the road after yeah. that truck drives away. It's very it's, falling down. Like that, yeah. that's what yeah. I was thinking. Yeah. 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 No, it's and great, th- great comparison. What I like about this movie and what I think addresses to me addresses a point of criticism about it that I have seen, which is this notion that, you know, Cassie makes all these choices. And, you know, I've, I've seen the complaint that, you know, this she's just working without even, you know, she doesn't know that this was is what Nina would want. Yeah, she's yeah. speaking on behalf of Nina and acting on behalf of Nina. But Nina didn't say this is what she wanted. Well, first of all, baseline for a vengeance movie like this, no one can ask the permission of the dead person for what they wanted. They just need to go on their spree. And that's how these movies work. But at the same time, what I like so much about this movie is that you're not asked to root for Cassie blindly in everything you're, she does and support her decisions, you are asked to root for her in spite of the fact that yeah. what she is doing is clearly either questionable, horrifying, scary, grotesque. Like the idea that she would kind of kidnap a teenage girl or like sort of like abscond with her under false pretenses to go tell her mom that she dropped her off in a room where she might be raped to convince Alison Bree's character yep. that she was a victim of a rape while she was passed out. These are abhorrent things and Cassie does not feel good about them. So you are being made to care for this character who is your protagonist. And I am so fully on board with her, but it is asking you to interrogate the entire time 
can I root for this person? Is this person even rooting for themselves? What is satisfaction and what is victory if all of these triumphs actually feel so hollow? And to me, it suggests that if she had even been able to go through with what she intended to with Al and carve Nina's name all over his body with a scalpel, it seems to me that she might have walked out of that house at the end of the night, shuffled her way to her car, and been just as hollow as she was when she went in the door because Nina still wouldn't be back. But it would just be the thing that her whole life has been building to for so long that she had to do it. Mm-hmm. But there's no satisfaction in it because it's just perpetuating a cycle of violence. It's not moving her life forward at all. It's just keeping her mired in in the loss she experienced seven years ago. Yeah, so I think that the way in which her actions are framed uh, is pretty smart because you don't get a sense that like oh this is uh, a person you should definitely root for no matter what right Mm -hmm. it's somebody who is uh, displays like very questionable behavior and you get the sense that like hey no satisfaction is to be had like it'd be one thing if she got all of her revenge and like there's a there's a version of this movie where mm-hmm. all of this revenge could have been framed as like this massive triumph, which it kind of goes there at the end of the movie. But mm-hmm. there's a different version where it could have been even more in that direction, right? Yeah. And um, where like tricking Alison Bree's character into thinking she's raped is like framed as this like this like delightful, amazing thing that she did versus like yeah, the like extremely- a yes bitch, like high five, right, like, snaps right. moment, <laughs> as opposed to like it's extremely upsetting, you know what she does, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I, it, it's, I think it's very smart that the film doesn't go that way. It, it goes in a way that's, that's far more complex. Exemplified nowhere better mm-hmm. than in the ending of the movie, which is mm-hmm. no, like, I, I was like, okay. Uh, and, and I'll just say like, I didn't love this movie as much as you guys. Um, I think it's w- well worth talking about, but it's like, uh, uh, it's a movie that I thought was a little bit all over the place and whose, um, who's, I guess, messages I find a little bit questionable and uh, I'm sure we can talk about them. Yeah. But I have to say that I did not see that ending coming. And exactly. (laughs) Exactly. How how often are we truly surprised? (laughs) Right. Especially in a genre that's been like tread so often, you know? Exactly. Mm -hmm. So after all this time, I'm watching this movie. I'm like, okay, I think I know what this movie is. You know, like, let's just get this over with. And then (laughs) it gets to the ending and I'm like, holy shit, I did not see that coming and the way in which it's depicted as you said is excruciating too like in real time in like a long continuous shot you watch a man suffocate this woman to death Mm -hmm. i'm not saying i liked the ending i'm saying i liked the fact that it was not the ending that i saw coming Mm -hmm. uh i thought the uh interview that uh, like uh, the the director emerald fennel has given many interviews right about why the ending happened this way And uh, I'll read a little bit from her interview at Harper's Bazaar. Um, She says, quote, it was important to me that if the audience is expecting or wanting violence, Mm -hmm. then this is what happens when women try to be violent. It's why we don't ever try to be violent, because it goes wrong. No matter how clever she is, no matter how meticulously planned it is, it's very, very difficult to physically fight a man if you're a small woman or any woman, really. Mm -hmm. So part of it for me was just the reality of the situation. What happens to her is dreadful. And I think the way she fights for her life proves that this is not the outcome she wanted. Mm-hmm. But she's also desperate. And she's so desperate that she does something incredibly dangerous. And she kind of acknowledges it might be too dangerous by the fact that she has a contingency plan. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's say, even if she had carved Nina's name all over Al's body and maimed him horribly, then she goes to prison. Mm-hmm. What is the happy ending for her going into that place? There is none. End mm-hmm. quote. Uh, and yeah, I, I mean, I thought that's a, it's a bold stance. Bold stance, and I admire it. 
Um, I do have like some some things about the ending that kind of sit with me a little bit weird. Mm-hmm. But let me pause for a second. We haven't heard from Devendra for a while. Yes. Um, Devendra, yeah. Any, I guess any thoughts on the ending and your experience of it? Oh, yeah. Like, uh, like I said, I love a movie that can surprise the hell out of me, right? And mm-hmm. I feel like having seen so many movies like this and so many thrillers, I'm like, okay, I, I kind of get a sense of what's happening here, right? And the trailer really sells this... Uh, this uh yeah go girl kill them all moment right and the whole final sequence uh i got shades of audition you know Mm -hmm. the japanese thriller that uh that i think became kind of infamous because of the way it depicted um you know a uh i don't know like a what's who somebody who's initially like a quiet young woman Mm -hmm. becomes a sadistic sort of uh yeah sort of dominatrix and from her makeup and her setup and everything, it just seemed like it was getting to that. The whole tattooing um, Nina's name on him. That is a very girl with the dragon tattoo thing, mm-hmm. like very much so. Um, so it, it is all of that. And then when she dies, I was also conflicted because uh, first of all, I didn't want that. And then mm-hmm. I thought to myself, that's exactly why she's doing this because it is not the ending that they want or that most audiences would want. Um, Nina, uh, she spends, uh, Cassandra spends this entire movie with a death wish basically, Mm -hmm. right? Like everything she does, letting herself be, you know, picked up by these guys only to all she does. She just sobers up. She's just like, Hey guy, I'm not, I'm not a drunk, (laughs) you know, I'm not drunk. I'm not going to beat you up or anything. It's just like, Hey, I see what you're doing. And I see that you're an asshole, not a nice guy. And your name goes in my book. That's all she does. But the potential for violence is there throughout the entire film. So I started getting very worried for her. And then, yeah, you yeah. see you see her turn more towards darkness towards the end. Like it is a lot of this film just feels like um, so many films about people with like psychological breaks in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Like uh, th- there's a point in this movie where she's like, I'm going to become the Joker, mm-hmm. you know? And she goes and and does her thing. Yeah. I think there's an important distinction, too, as far as psychologically between like, you know, there's a difference between wanting to die and just not caring very much if you're alive. Exactly. And I think Mm. the, you know, and the idea of I don't know that I don't think Cassie is like suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's part of her situation. But that is something that that is something that is very common. That is something that a lot of people experience. And it doesn't mean necessarily that people are making plans. But the reality of being detached from whether or not you're alive in this world and whether or not you be you want to be a part of it is a very common thing. Mm -hmm. And I think and, and like, you know, Emerald said, she knew that it was a serious enough decision she was making in the end to establish a contingency. I don't think Cassie went in there wanting to die. I think I've sort of seen some assertions that are like, well, this was her suicide plan. I don't think like, and I think Emerald is born this right. conversation. She didn't want to die, but she was for so long. So indifferent as to whether or not she was living in this world. I think it enabled that decision that she made ultimately. Most definitely. Most definitely. And this movie could have ended much darker too. Like Emerald has talked about like her original ending was just ending you know, right when they set her body on fire. Oh my god! Yeah, that's no, no, that's like it. And ending, the, the financiers no were like, uh, I, I don't know <laughs> about that. You know, which uh, th- that would be even darker. And by the way, that entire scene, Max Greenfield, what a like, what a way <laughs> to use the power of his like his humor. Of Schmidt, of, of Schmidt. Schmidt. It's the power of Schmidt from New Girl. Like the broy, cool, funny guy, but also like, yeah, we gotta burn this girl's body. Like, we got, we got no mm-hmm. choice here. I'm your bro. I'm gonna watch mm-hmm. out for you, bro. I'm gonna do this thing. It was so <laughs> yeah. wild. Like, it was funny while also being horrifying. And that's another mm-hmm. point that really sold me on this movie too. If it had ended there, 
I, I think that would have been a very direct, even more of a powerful thing because now it's like, okay, yeah, she gets her revenge at the end, sort of like she had planned all this out. And um, it is sort of, it, it is probably the happiest realistic story that Cassie could right. have gotten, right? Yeah. Like there, there's no way. And given everything else she's done, like threatening a teenage girl's life, framing uh, you know, framing her friend with sexual assault like somebody was going to come after her legally or hire other, those same goons that she was hiring to mess her up like this was not going to end well in any way and at least now like it it's almost like she ends it on her her own terms uh because she had sort of prepared for this happening so i i've come to terms with all that and i do think like this movie is just doing such weird and funny stuff um it just takes this genre in a completely different way i think of like uh, Paul Verhoeven's L, you L, know, absolutely, L. yeah, phenomenal mm, yeah. movie, and also a very complex movie because most of the time you're like, "What is she doing? <laughs> what is you know? What is yeah. the main character I mean, of L doing?" You rarely see yeah. innovation in the fo- in form in a mm-hmm. in a whole subgenre, and that what Verhoeven does in that him and Isabel Huppert are reinventing mm-hmm. what you can do within the boundaries of a, yeah. of a rape story like that. And that is Which an is... incredible thing to do. That's an incredible thing to capitalize on. Say I have this opportunity to, to disrupt, to reinvent, to mm-hmm. actually break mm-hmm. something and rebuild it. And that's an incredibly bold step to take and then to do it so well. I love that film. It's beautiful. I love that it's movie good... too. And it's a hard thing to talk about, right? Because when when I try to talk about this movie, when I try to talk about L with people, right? Like, well, it's about you know <laughs> she gets she gets raped at the beginning of the movie, and then like it's, it's and a then whole people complex say, thing. Sir, yeah. this is a Wendy's. I don't know why yeah. you're telling me about this. <laughs> but nobody will talk to me, Wendy. <laughs> nobody will talk to me. Um, I agree. You know, in both films, L and this one, it, uh, I uh, have that same question. Like, what exactly should you know? I don't necessarily agree with what this person is doing, but I respect mm-hmm. their autonomy in being able to do it. Yeah, it's an um, interesting. L is a fascinating exercise in self determination of somebody yes. who has been mm-hmm. victimized. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Okay, uh, so I, I'm going to bring up two things about the ending, yes. and one of the things is uh, like. I guess overall, the question I have for you, Jordan, is mm-hmm. what <laughs> is a very cliche question. What message do you think this movie is sending? Let me read this piece from uh, from Alison Wilmore. This is from Vulture, the right, queasy right. ending of Promising Young Woman. And Alison, in this very brilliant piece, compares uh, M- the ending of Promising Young Woman to the end of I May Destroy You. Mm-hmm. I will not mm-hmm. spoil what happens in the ending of I May Destroy You. Um, I will say both uh, Promising Young Woman and I May Destroy You are about how women deal with sexual trauma in various ways. And um, Allison writes here, quote, I May Destroy You embraces a radical revolutionary empathy in its finale that may be more aspirational than replicable for most of us, but it presents a way of imagining life after trauma and of releasing rage as an act of self-care rather than weakness or forgiveness. What Promising Young Woman opts for is something much grimmer with Cassie crowing from beyond her unmarked grave as consequences finally come calling on the men who ruined others and then moved on. She may come out on top in that incendiary, uncomfortable ending, her triumph broadcast with a posthumous smiley emoji, but righteousness is cold comfort when you're dead, end quote. Mm-hmm. And I guess, uh, yes, I agree. The ending is is a subversion, it's a surprise, but ultimately, I think the complaint I have seen and that I kind of am feeling, you know, I'm still making my mind up about this movie, still thinking through it, is that like Mm -hmm. this movie seems to be sending the message like if you attempt to get revenge, 
um, for horrible crimes such as the ones referred to in this movie, mm-hmm. you will end up dead. And, and you know, Devinder, you're saying things like, oh, well, you know, with, like, lawyers and the, these people are rich and whatever, uh, like, it was never going to end well for Cassie, right? Which mm-hmm. yeah. I agree in a movie that is, like, realistic, but you don't say those, you don't have those complaints about a movie like John Wick. You're not like, <laughs> oh, my right. gosh, Keanu's going to be, like, <laughs> engulfed yeah. in the in the legal system but for years. That, because that those movie are... presents an entire assassination, like, culture, right? It is, yeah, but <laughs> this, it is, this it is, movie is a this culture movie, of assassination. <laughs> it's a culture it's, it's, They have <laughs> hotels. They have <laughs> money. They have their own money. Come on. like I think right. the point I'm making is that, like, like John Wick is like fundamentally a fantasy, right? Yeah. And yeah. this movie is not a fantasy. It, it it decides to not go the fantasy way. And I think a lot of people were hoping for a fantasy, and they didn't. Got, they did not that's get what one. You, that's kind of what you want with this genre, right? That is yeah, why, right. at least like the few I do like, like I, I I appreciate it when these women who are wrong get to fuck people up. You know, Absolutely. I was expecting. I will watch that twenty five yeah. hours a day for sure. <laughs> I was ready for so, this to be like a Lady Snowblood or something, yeah. right? And then it doesn't end up being that. And I I get that complaint, Dave. I do get that complaint. I don't think it says that. Hey, by the way, if anybody tries to do this, um, mm-hmm. you know, you're you could die. But I do think this movie, over and over, is pointing out that oh yeah, it the guys could have very easily gotten away with this. Like if this movie had ended at the scene where they burned her body, mm-hmm. that's the most realistic ending of this movie. That's Honestly, what yeah. happens in real life. That's Brock Turner. You know, mm-hmm. that is most cases of sexual assault in this country. So yeah, if you want to get grim. Things are even much grimmer, you know, than the idea that, yeah, she could, if you take revenge, you could potentially get killed as a woman that there, there is some truth to that, or at least you cannot get the justice you typically want because there's no, there's no justice in this world. And then when you look at similar movies to this, right, the one starring men, I'm thinking of like American Psycho, and I'm thinking a bit of like the Joker too, like the the ones where the men get to be unruly, they're usually fine by the end of it. American Psycho, the whole point of that ending is he's fine. He's totally fine. And even he is, he, even he is shocked by the level of privilege he wields because he can kill people and nothing happens. I, I, yeah, Jordan, go ahead. Go ahead. To me, the most, uh, to me, the most uh, analogous movie um, for what promising young woman is doing is miss 45 where a movie that I love and is fascinating, even more fascinating. I think when you look at miss 40, when you look at promising young woman, because you realize how far ahead of its time, Abel Ferreira, was in making that film because it's so resemble so much more resembles so much more closely a movie we watch in 2020 than it did another movie we would have watched in 1981 with the way it is so stylish and with the way Zoe um Tamerly Lind uh becomes this vigilante entrapping men throughout the streets of New York City just beckoning them to commit sexual crimes so she can kill them and then culminates in a grand costume party where she's dressed as a nun and she mows down all of these people but ultimately dies and what I will say about the end of about the end of Promising Young Woman and why I embrace it is because I d- and why it is so exciting to me to have it in conversation with an objective, incredible triumph like I May Destroy You. We can have both. Like the fact that both of these movies exist, both this show and this movie exist within a year of each other to talk about and have that spectrum of processing the effects of this sort of violence, the blast radius that it leaves around it and the various avenues through which it can be either resolved or not resolved. The fact that we have the option to discuss both 
means that we do not simply have the I spit on your grave franchise anymore. And when I, I, I name checked like Neo exploitation earlier, L is part of that. This movie is part of that. The movie, the perfection is part of that. And that's a grindhouse rape revenge, lesbian mm-hmm. affair film. And MFA is a part of that, a quiet, understated, independent film about like assault on campus. And the Nightingale is part of that. And I know Jennifer Kent is very reluctant to have rape revenge attached to her film as a label, but they're fundamentally that is what is happening in that film. And that's a period piece that reckons with a heroine who has gone through something horrible and wants to embark on a path of vengeance for her, her dead husband and child, but is also along the way, a racist and kind of an asshole to the, Mm -hmm. the guide, the, the Aboriginal guide that she is relying on to get her to the people that she wants to seek vengeance against. She herself is an imperfect heroine an imperfect victim. And so the fact that we have this broad range of movies to talk about that are doing things so differently and are often almost all of those, I think, but for the perfection I cited are direct and and L are directed by women getting a chance to tell these stories for themselves and the self-determination that comes into being able to end these stories on our own terms and not having to fight through the male gaze to dance on the right side of the razor's edge Mm -hmm. where you can either fall into exploitation or empowerment territory. The fact that we have these options and that texture is so thrilling to me. And another important part about the ending to me that I really liked as far as, you know, talking about uh, real life analogies, analogous situations to, you know, the idea of the promising young man, like the sort of Brock Turners of the world. A friend said to me after he watched this movie and called me at 11.30 p.m. was desperate to talk about it. And he he we were talking about the ending and he's like it was he was like it had to end that way because the men in the end had to be exactly what she thought they were. And I really liked him saying that it really made a lot of Mm -hmm. sense to me. Mm -hmm. And specifically as it relates to the characters, you can even see it. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. You have Al who when he kills Cassie, he is leaning over her body, telling her to stop moving, stop moving. Yep, yep. This he is essentially, your fault. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, would act, he, would, he would absolutely say that she made him do it. I didn't do it. She made me do it. You're doing this to yourself. Stop it. St- basically, st- stop hurting yourself. And back in college, it was the same thing. Well, I didn't do anything. She was drunk. She was asking for it. She liked a good time. What did you expect from me? It wasn't me. It was it was an accident. Things happen. I, we were just kids. And then you have Ryan's character who resolves, you know, he's the good guy. You're rooting for him. It's a touching love story. They're singing Stars Are Blind in the coolest pharmacy in America that's for some reason in Ohio. And you have him ultimately doing exactly what he did in college. He is shown the video by Cassie and he doesn't agree to help her bring Al account bring Al to accountability. Mm-hmm. He breaks up with her. He calls her a like a loser bitch basically for dropping out of med school and when the police come to him and he has the chance to tell them what he knows, he opts out. He didn't do yet again Ryan didn't do anything. Just like in college when he walked into the room and he saw Al raping Nina, he didn't do anything. Another, another then, nice guy, by the way. I didn't realize, I guess I didn't know what Bo, who Bo Burnham looked like, what he looked like. That he's apparently. like 6'5". <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they also he's like this vaguely mousy guy. I guess I haven't seen his stand-up, but I know him from his writing and from the movie Eighth Grade, which I love. Yeah, not you know, I love his stardom. Exactly. Yeah, I would I would strongly recommend his his stand up if you could even call it that as well. It's very very interesting and, yeah. and innovative in my opinion. Yeah. But um I okay, just I, so, I think it is I just am, I just w- really want to emphatically say like this idea of mm-hmm. 
you know, and AOC brought up the interesting point when the, the important point when she was doing her Instagram live recently about what happened to her at the Capitol saying, when people don't want to take responsibility, what they're saying to you is, can we just let this go so yeah. I can do it again? And what happened with the male characters in this movie, the ones at the center of the Nina story, Ryan and Al and, you know, Schmidt, basically, what happened with them is they didn't take they didn't have to take accountability. They didn't have to take responsibility for what they did. And what it amounted to was, can we just forget this ever happened so I can do it again? And each one of them, one to one, does exactly again what they did in college and were never punished for the first time. When people show you who you are or who they are, believe them. And when men do these things, when when there are victims in the wake of a of a sexual predator, there when you hear one story, you're probably not hearing the first, and you're certainly not hearing the last yeah. because people will do it again. Max Greensfield's character has probably done this before because he is way too organized. Oh my about god. This. Yeah, he was He's so like, prepared to dispose of a body. Just get the body out of here. Take it to a field. You know, light it. Uh, the biggest fire you've ever seen. The race all yeah. evidence. Like he just had it down like a mm-hmm. freaking assassin. It's weird. So, uh, okay, uh, Jordan, I actually think everything you said is valid. Particularly the part about like uh, we can have both of these things. I mean, I I mm-hmm. also agree. I think I may destroy you. The ending of that was just incredible. I, I've never seen anything like the ending of I May Destroy. So if you haven't seen that show yet, watch it just because of the ending, which I think is just remarkable. Um, here's where you lose me. Okay. okay? It's, it's actually not in anything you said because everything you said is accurate, in my opinion. But if this movie is going to be that, is going to be what you and many others have characterized it in, on this podcast, as well as outside of the podcast, as a kind of, realistic, non-fantasy depiction of what would happen in this situation. Mm-hmm. Are you going to get into law enforcement? Oh, yes, we are. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> then, it should, then it should be that. It should mm-hmm. be the thing that I just said. Mm-hmm. Um, Kyle Turner, very talented writer, right. wrote a piece about this uh, recently. And I'll read a little bit from this piece, but he talks about basically the ending of the movie. Um, and so the, ver- the very ending, not the part where Cassie dies, but he writes here, quote, uh, while I would be hesitant to call it copaganda, the contradictions in Promising Young Woman's ending and the lack of attempt to bridge the film's structural and institutional critique with the reality of working with the systems, of, systems in place is the Jenga piece that makes it feel like the film as a whole tumbles down. Not that its criticisms of complicity and rape culture are inaccurate or unwarranted by any means, but as a complete work, it's muddy and at times opaque, both in its ethos and its artistry. The film goes out of its way to establish the ways in which interpersonal and structural abuses are intertwined, that the legal system and the bureaucracy of higher education, perhaps even the way bars and ride-sharing apps are managed without the consideration of women's safety, are key in perpetuating rape culture and have done irreparable and irredeemable damage in the fight for justice for survivors and victims of rape and sexual assault. The film's nastier parts are some of its brightest. In its double bind of the university dean and her daughter and the former friend, played by Alison Brie, but there's an inequity there, too, in terms of the trauma they face and the lectures that the would-be rapists get. So why call on the police, an institution famously good at helping survivors and victims of rape and sexual assault at the end? Or why not confront the contradictions of having to work within an unjust system to achieve something akin to it? End quote. So there is this kind of contradiction, I think, in this idea that like this movie is an indictment of all the systems that led Cassie to get to the point that she's in. And then for its kind of prestige moment, right, the, the final like, aha, it relies on 
the police for justice to be done. Mm-hmm. And to me, you know, Devendra, you were saying how like the original ending was no no police. That to me feels That's like a an ending. True. Yeah, right. If you, it's like mm-hmm. if you're gonna go that way. You should like have the courage of your convictions. I understand she might not have been able to get that movie made as a financial reality, <laughs> but I think that that there, but that doesn't like make the movie escape from from criticism of yeah. this ending. So I've I've seen this criticism by the way, and I yeah. I just have to think like I what are we applying this amount of I don't know pressure on any other movie that ends with police just getting some evidence and you know showing up at the, at the end of the day to clean things up like the movie is a critique of institutional systems that led to injustice i agree so so the idea that the climax relies on an institution in order to obtain justice i think people are reasonably led to feel this is an inherent contradiction i I, sure sure where and and i and i certainly i i I certainly see the i I see the point of view in that and i i respect it and I, i i do think that there's credibility to it my response to that would be i think ultimately and this is you know it's a hard thing to swallow about this movie which is how many how many times have we had to wait for a woman's story to matter until after she's dead mm-hmm. and that's true and i don't need to i don't need for the morgue of of bodies of women to be filled up anymore to demonstrate to me that a story was potent enough to be told but with what i see with this um the police are are not involved you know, the police are never involved in these kind of vengeance movies. Like, there's no cops in John Wick. There's no right, there's no right. cops in any of these movies. Well, the but, cops like, are his the, friends, right? Like, they should, they, yeah. pop, they pop up and like, hey, oh, uh, yeah. busy hey, night. John. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, John. Um, I think with this, what we see is the fact that there was no movement on the police intervening even in what mm-hmm. had happened. This is her nuclear option. The last possible thing she has, and she knows, she knows by virtue of the contingency plan she's put in place, the only way police become valid to her is in her death. Mm -hmm. The only way police become, and even a consideration in her plan, is knowing that that the trade on a dead white woman will be what possibly gets them to move at all. And the only, the only emissary we have of justice on the legal side is that moment is an, is a, aging white lawyer in the form of Alfred Molina, who will take evidence to the police to see justice done. There is no female avatar that Mm. helps get her justice in that moment. It has to be turned over to somebody who has been sanctioned and had success within the legal system manipulating it to then see her story through to its conclusion. And only with the overwhelming evidence of both her murder and video evidence of a rape years earlier are the police then moved into action, which I think doesn't lionize the police in the way that they come and storm the castle. I think it is an indictment on the fact that that is the burden of proof Mm -hmm. that it takes to get the boys in blue to show up for a woman is if you have the hard video evidence, if you have the goddamn DNA to point to for where your, and where your body will be in the woods. Like it's the, you know, draw them them a diagram, a plus B plus C like, okay. I remember when, you know, 
know, COVID hit, I saw many people on Twitter posting, you know, with a lot of fury when everything was being so mismanaged, saying like, if I die, lay my body, if I die of COVID, lay my body on the Capitol steps and politicize it. Make me political, politicize my death. And in this moment, you have kind of Cassie sort of making that choice to like throw my body on the steps of the police station and tell them to fucking do something about it now. Which again, I don't think is, I don't think makes them the white knights of the day. It makes them the Johnny come latelys who finally show up after everyone's been killed. Mm. I think that's interesting. Um, I I don't buy it, but I thought that was a really, really good defense of the point of I'm view. I'm a good that, like, emotional that, salesman. That the ending is, <laughs> in your interpretation, right? Like that the ending is actually an indictment, a further indictment of the system. It kind of is. It, they didn't it, do I'm anything. Not, they didn't do anything. They, they didn't, didn't do anything. Do anything. They just she showed did up. all of their work for them. I'm, and I'm, I'm, yep, I, go ahead. It has to, I, I have to do, I feel like I have to do my diligence of acknowledging uh, there. We talked about a little bit this, a little bit about this in our sort of pre call, David, where I, I feel like I've noticed a distinct sort of split in the, the writers that I follow on Twitter, the women of color writers that I follow. There has been, it seems like a more frequent derision um, over this movie and the ways that it falls short to them in its inequity in taught, you know, bringing the police in at the very last moment to possibly be these saviors and to, you know, in the way that this is not an intersectional view of how women in the justice system are dealt with. This is a very white feminism movie and the, the culture, the white culture writers, uh, all, all women that I'm discussing in this context, um, there's been a much higher percentage of them who've gone full bore, full throated support for this film. And this is a white feminism film and the fact, fact of its existence and where it falls short in that way. And the fact that, I'm not mad that this movie didn't get into the dynamics of how the system is more just for for the Cassies of the world, even even though it is inherently unjust um, to women. The fact that she has so much more privilege to operate unscathed as she does in a, as a white woman of the world where a black woman could not have gotten away with the gambit. She was carrying on with all these men at clubs. Their lives are inherently more endangered just by walking down the street every day, let alone putting themselves in scary situations like Cassie is with men. Not, and not only I in think, danger, but I would argue yeah. like are cared for less by the police. Like if you Absolutely. tried to make this movie with a black woman at the center of it uh, yeah. and have that ending, I think it would strike people as even more discordant, right? Oh, absolutely. And I think I think the one of the most valuable things that a movie like this can be, I, do, I am glad that this movie didn't try to do more in that way because I don't know the adeptness of these this batch of filmmakers to tell that kind of dynamic story. Yeah. And I yeah. would not have wanted to see some work that is so important like that be underserved. I want to see black and brown and queer women making their own movies telling these stories. I don't want to see a white woman who has already made the second season of Killing Eve and has made her feature debut in this telling the stories of black and brown women and the injustices they experience at the hands of the system when perhaps she is not the one to most deftly tell that story. Mm. And what I but what I think this movie can serve as such an important um, piece for learning is acknowledging that shortcoming and telling through acknowledging its shortcomings and Mm -hmm. examining the ways in which it could have done better being like, this is how we grow as students of this art, as people who are critical of this art and of culture and sharpen our own skills for how we talk about it and be empathetic listeners to other kinds of criticism to be like, okay, I am learning tools 
to more better dissect this movie and future movies like it will that will come down the pipe so that we can continue to demand more and better and can continue to further recognize the necessity of more and different people being able to tell these sorts of vital stories around sexual violence because one person cannot cannot possibly capture the grand array of perspective that we need around something that is so such an epidemic of violence and i i i love the dissent around this movie because it is critical that we whiteness cannot be left unchecked and unexamined and if it is we only hurt ourselves we only hurt art we only hurt these films and we continue to perpetuate a system of white supremacy that has done too much harm already. So I, I, I look forward to more opportunities to discuss the ways that this movie's whiteness is so much on its sleeve and perhaps ways that that assists us in breaking down discourse barriers and the way that it might hold us back from moving into different forms of conversation that we need. Well, as with everything else you said, uh, well said Jordan on that last point. Oh, thank Um, you. Uh, any anything else we want to say about this movie? I feel like uh, I, I feel like I have presented some of the sort of contradictions and complaints, and you you have parried them expertly. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, any, anything else you want to say about uh, the ending or or uh, anything else we've we have not touched upon yet? For me, um, another you know this I think an important thing to point out is that this is going this this movie it deals with something so intimate obviously everybody perceives and and processes art in their own way and for a story like this you're dealing with an audience for whom you're going this is going to find its way in front of a lot of survivors and um i have i know many people who many women who have watched this and thought oh my god i i i feel so heartened by this i feel so enlivened by seeing what I am. And then I've read reactions to where people have said, I feel like this is a net negative. I feel like this sets us back. I feel like this is damaging to survivors in the message that it sends to them. And I've seen in some of the critiques around it, it being compared to movies like Revenge or MFA. And I've seen critiques that suggest Emerald Fennel didn't realize what she was doing, and so she made art that was harmful without considering the ramifications of her choices. And I think regardless of how anybody feels about this movie, whether they feel like it is it, it, it should be buried under the jail, or they feel like it is the next great hurdle in, in you know, progress in rape revenge cinema, I really don't. I really do believe Emerald Fennel knew exactly what she was doing. Mm-hmm. I do believe she knew and was in control of her choices and the implications of them. And I think to say that to suggest that it fell short because it was not for an example, an MFA or because it was not a cold hell, um, I think is to say that even if like you might like those movies better and the kinds of resolutions that those movies give, but because promising young woman didn't give that does not mean that it failed in its own intentions for the movie that it was trying to be. I, I think Emerald Fennel was well, well, well aware of what this movie was going to say. And I don't think, I don't think she made like novice mistakes of just going in for shock value. Um, I think this is a very confident and embodied first feature. So regardless of whether or not one likes it, I think the intentions were, I think the decisions were not made without considering the full scope of their ramifications. So I I feel the same way. I mean, I've read a lot of interviews with Emerald Fennel and it always, she always strikes me as very thoughtful. And like, Mm -hmm. even if I disagree, it's always like, okay, she clearly put a lot of thought, considered all the implications. Um, And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear her perspective on it, which is basically, 
uh, you may be offended by this film. You may hate this movie, but do mm-hmm. not say that what it was trying to do was unintentional, right? Yeah. Do not yeah, say like, it was careless, right? You might even, if, 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 if somebody watches this and they're like, this was a negative experience for me and I actually wish I hadn't seen it, then I wish for you too that you hadn't seen it. I, I, I wish for you too that for the specific way that this can be triggering for people that, I you know, you don't want to spoil the ending for a person, but you do want to protect them from the kind of stress and and trauma that a movie like this can resurrect. Like a few people came to me on Twitter and DM'd me and they were like, hey, I want to watch this with my person, my like my partner, my, my spouse, what have you. They're sensitive to these kinds of things. What do you think about this movie? And I'd have sort of extended conversations with them about like, okay, how much do you want to know? How much do you want to be surprised? Because I want to walk you through everything I could possibly tell you to help you feel prepared and armed for what you're about to see. Because I think people should engage with challenging and provocative art. I don't just sit here and say like, oh, well, if you can't hang with promising young women, then like you're not (laughs) tough enough. Like, no, this could not be more sensitive. This could not be more challenging in the kind of material that it is confront that it's asking you to confront. And so if people want to say, throw this in the fire toots and let it burn, then I'm like, good, never watch it again. And I will not try and upsell you on it. (laughs) I mean, that's how I talk. I use toots all the time. I think we shouldn't (laughs) uh, totally underused, totally underused. Well, uh, Jordan, this has been fascinating and an absolute delight. Um, Jordan Cruciola is a writer whose work has appeared at Vulture, Wired, and Brightwall Dark Room. You can also listen to her on the Austerian podcast and the Disaster Girls podcast. Jordan, thanks so much for joining us today on the Slash Homecast. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this movie is so important to me. I love it so much, and I appreciate so much the opportunity to come on and talk to you guys about it and for you to listen to me stemwind in the way that I can. Um, so thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. I super appreciate it, and I hope people felt like this was compelling. All right, and uh, thanks for listening to this episode of the Slash Filmcast. Find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com if you want to support the show head on over to patreon.com slash film podcast. You can also support Jordan's work over at patreon.com slash cruciola. And we'll link to all that in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.